Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Wall Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Pagini. There are innumerable podcasts offering bite-sized ideas and intelligent chat. Thinking Hard and Slow offers something a little different, the opportunity to settle down and listen to an extended philosophical lecture, followed by a discussion digging even deeper into it. All our guests are philosophers or related thinkers at the top of their games. Their brief is to talk to intelligent and curious listeners who may know nothing at all about their subject. Series 1 mainly features talks from this year's London lectures on the theme of expanding horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. This episode features Joanna Birch-Brown, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Bristol. Her work has focused on issues of contested heritage and public memory. She is a founding member of the University of Bristol Centre for Black Humanities and is currently co-chairing the Bristol History Commission. In the true spirit of expanding horizons, we're also going to be hearing a response by Sean Edwards, Chairman of the International Trade and Forfeiting Association. Joanna Birch-Brown's talk is called The Philosophy of Green Finance. This is an especially timely issue given that the talk was delivered a week after the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Conference. Here it is. So the topic for today is green finance, and I'm sure people have been thinking about this as they've been following COP26, wondering what we're going to be doing about our climate and uh, attendant problems. So finance is about getting money from one place to another. If you're managing the finance of an organization, that means you're managing large amounts of money. If you're financing something, you're directing money into it. Green finance is about directing and managing money for sustainability. Um, And it's absolutely essential that we tackle green finance uh, right now, that we use it effectively, because protecting the planet is the biggest challenge of our time. One of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in our lifetimes is figuring out how we're going to transition to a sustainable economy. And where the money goes is just absolutely essential to that. So green finance is key for shaping humanity's future, and it's that's not an exaggeration. Therefore, we really all need to be thinking about this and looking carefully at how we go about financing green initiatives and getting the money into the right places. The focus of this talk today is going to be mostly on looking at something called the EU taxonomy. And I'm going to be thinking about some of the conceptual foundations of that. What I'll do is introduce you to the EU taxonomy. I'll describe what that taxonomy is, what it does. Um, It's going to be a really important tool going forward. I'll describe what it does. I'll describe what it does well, what is attractive and what the real strengths are of it, because there are many. Um, And then I'm going to identify three gaps, three limitations to this tool that mean that we could invest our money according to the EU taxonomy, but still have catastrophic environmental effects. And I'm going to explain why that is. And I will give a suggestion about how we address those gaps. And 
Uh, this is a very solutions-focused talk, so although the things I'm talking about are quite big in scale, I want to have a clear sort of focus on what we can do to address them. And I think we can address them, and we have um, an interesting starting point here with uh, the conversation with Sean. But first, before we get into looking at these practical details, I want to think about a motivational problem, because I think that most of us believe that we can't address climate change. For many people, there's a sense that this problem is just too big. And so because we've believed that we can't address it, we haven't really been trying. So I think before we turn to the practical details, I want to give us a little motivational story and then after that, we'll turn to some of the gnarly practical details. They're a little bit abstract. Okay, so the motivational part. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's a, this is a Buddhist sutra, very important, influential Buddhist sutra. There's a chapter called The Inconceivable Liberation. And in this chapter, Vimalakirti is a Buddha. He's gathered all of these bodhisattvas and disciples in his house, there are 5,000 of them, and they're all fit into this house. Uh, Shariputra is one of the disciples, and he is like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I don't have a chair to sit on. None of us have chairs. How are we going to sit around? How are we going to be able to concentrate on studying the Dharma if we have 5,000 people crammed into this little space with no chairs to sit on? So he's trying not to think this, but he is thinking it. And Vimalakirti, the Buddha, looks at him and says, I can see that you're thinking about chairs. And of course, Shariputra is like, oh, yes, I am actually. And Vimalakirti says, did you come here for the Dharma or did you come here for the chairs? Because if you came for the Dharma, if you care about the Dharma, you do not care about chairs. You don't care about the body. And he starts going off on one and he's laboring his point and going on and on. And, and then after quite a long spiel, 500 of these beings become spontaneously enlightened and freed. And then Vimalakirti says, okay, now we're ready for a change of mood. Let's get some chairs around here. So he says, Manjushri, you have been all over the different Buddha verses. Which Buddha verse has the best chairs? And uh, Manjushri says, ah, oh, yes, if you go to the Buddha field, it's as far away as... 32,000 Ganges rivers, or the, the grains of sand from 32 Ganges rivers, I think it is, in the polar region, um, this polar region, there's a land where um, the chairs are 3,400,000 leagues tall, like as, you know, as big as from here to the center of the earth or something. Um, and they're magnificent lion thrones. Those are the most magnificent chairs in all of the Buddha verses. So then Vimalakirti, through an act of magnificent concentration, spontaneously, miraculously, brings 3,200,000 of these chairs. He's only got 5,000 people in his room, in his, in his house anyway, but he brings 3,200,000 of these chairs spontaneously to his home, and they descend from the heavens, and they arrange themselves naturally. And despite the fact that they're so big, they don't cram the space. Everybody can still see clearly. And nothing else is out of proportion. It's just that these enormous, magnificent chairs are, are now here. And then Vimalakirti says, all right, Manjushri, have your bodhisattvas sit on these chairs, please. But of course, the chairs are 
as big as the earth. So Manjushri says, okay, sit on the chairs. And the bodhisattvas who had had that spontaneous enlightenment sit themselves on the chairs without trouble. And Shariputra and the other disciples who are not quite to bodhisattva level say, I'm very sorry, Vimala Kirti, but we're too small to sit on these chairs. We're not big enough. And he says, no, you have to bow to the Tathagata. That's the understanding that you are Buddha nature, uh, in fact, and everything is spacious. And if you do that, then you'll become big enough to spontaneously sit on this chair. And so they do. They become big enough to sit in the chairs. So the message is that this is the situation we are in, in our need to tackle environmental challenges right now. We are the people in the room, and the chairs are that big, and we have to become big enough to sit in them, because it's not up to anybody else. It's up to us. We're the ones who are here, and we have to take this moment to transform what we're doing, to transform how we're thinking, and to, become, to grow big enough to sit in these chairs. A couple of months ago, I was invited to give a talk for the uh, International Trade and Forfeiting Association annual conference. And I quite nervously but did begin that talk with this story about these chairs and the moment that we're in and how important it is. And I was picturing this whole audience. There were like 200 bankers in the audience and I was picturing them all as these bodhisattvas and the kind of sense of a like really sacred company that we're all in at the moment with this uh, big challenge. Okay, but it's not just up to the bankers to get bigger. It's all of us. It's Main Street, not Wall Street, that shapes a lot of what happens. So it's the demand side and it's, it's all of us. So that's the motivational part. Now, what about the practical part? We have big practical challenges ahead, which we have to tackle together and we have to do it very well. Um, I'm gonna now turn to thinking about the EU taxonomy. Okay, so we have this new tool. It's really exciting. It's called the EU taxonomy, and it's a classification system that has been brought in in the EU that is, um, is gonna be a model for lots of similar kind of systems across the globe, which are already in development, but this looks like it's gonna be quite an influential one. So getting this one right is going to matter a lot. So the EU taxonomy basically gives us a classification system that lets investors identify whether an investment is green. So this is really important because if you look at, say, our most recent budget coming through, there's a lot of money oriented towards green finance. But there are a lot of problems with things like you know, greenwashing, like people claiming that this is green when in fact it's not, right? And so the purpose of this taxonomy is to give a set criteria and a shared language and definition for what it is that counts as a green investment to reduce the amount of greenwashing and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of, uh, of investments. This is really exciting. So the basic framework works like this. The taxonomy identifies six environmental objectives that we all should be working towards. The first one is climate change mitigation. That's reducing emissions so that we don't have so much climate change. The second objective is climate change adaptation. So that is making the adjustments that we need to make in order to reduce 
how impactful climate change is that does take place. A third one is around uh, sustainable use of water and marine resources. A fourth one is around transition to a circular economy. So a circular economy is, is one where when you're finished with your chair, let's say, um, you don't just chuck it out, you break it down into its parts and those get reused again so that everything that we're, all the materials that we're bringing into our economies, you know, have a longer life cycle that they come back around and are reusable. The fifth objective is related to that one and it's to reduce and manage pollution. So when you're thinking about pollution, it's not just a matter of, well, it is very importantly things like what you're throwing in your bin, but it's not just that, it's also things like pollution of air, it's like over fertilization, eutrophication of water, it's anything where our, the chemicals that we're using are entering the environment in various different ways and, and causing harmful change. And then the final one is protecting and restoring biodiversity and ecosystems. So the way that this framework works is it says you've got a green investment on your hands if it's the case that it will benefit one of these environmental objectives and you know, supports one of those environmental objectives without undermining any of the other ones. So the really exciting and great thing about this is that it helps you to understand environmental trade-offs and it helps you build your framework around that. So environmental trade-offs are really important because what we don't want to do, and what I'll be talking about a lot really here, is something like, um, I don't know, you're gonna clear a big swath of rainforest in order to build a solar farm, you know, and then claim that you're being green because you're reducing, you know, you're doing using renewable energy, but actually you're not being green because you've just destroyed the rainforest, right? So you don't want to be having your criteria of greenness failing to take into account these trade-offs. And the really attractive thing about the taxonomy is that it helps give people a really nice, simple, straightforward way of looking at those trade-offs. Um, in practice, it then has something called a compass. So the taxonomy compass is a tool that you can go in and explore yourself online. Um, you go into the compass, and it lists like all the different kinds of activities, the economic activities that you might be doing. And you go in and you find your economic activity and it then identifies whether that activity is uh, seen as benefiting one of these objectives. And it then gives you a kind of um, possible, in effect, a risk assessment related to the other ones. So let's say that you're building a solar farm. If you're building a solar farm and you, you look it up, oh, there's a solar farm, um, it'll say, great, you are contributing to renewable energy production, so you're reducing emissions, but have a look at whether you're harming biodiversity. Here's what you need to look for. You need to do an environmental impact assessment for the farm, and you need to check and make sure that you're not clearing away forest or clearing away highly biodiverse environment. It lists both of those, I think, because uh, forests actually aren't that biodiverse, but we care about them a lot as ecosystems, right? Yeah, which shows, I think there's another thing to look at here, which is around biodiversity. It's not just biodiversity, it's bioabundance that we should be looking towards, but um, these are for later stages of things. Anyway, so this is the way that taxonomy works. You can go in, you can 
go through. And this is, the real strength of this is that it means that investors have uh, a, a shared set of criteria that they can look towards, and um, and it's going to be very very helpful for reducing greenwashing. Okay, so that's the great story. Um, now I'll identify three problems with the framework as it stands, or three, in a way, like three limitations or challenges, you could say, uh, things that we need to work on in order to, in order to make sure that it's fit for purpose. And we're just at the beginning stages of this. It's only been published and made live this year. Uh, it will go through lots of changes and iterations. So this is quite a kind of positive story, really, but it's stuff that we need to work on. So the most important limitation, as I see it, is that the taxonomy as it stands focuses on individual investments. So it defines greenness as a function of an individual investment. But we know that a lot of environmental harm emerges really at the collective level, at the cumulative level. So to take an obvious example, if you drive your car around, you'll be releasing lots of emissions. Those emissions from your individual car are negligible. But it's when you look at all of us driving our cars that that then produces a massive harm. And it's at that collective level that a lot of these environmental harms emerge. Um, and this isn't actually just a function of the of environmental difficulties or of climate change specifically. It relates to how risk works in general. So um, if you look back at Markowitz's kind of uh, portfolio theory, the key insight there, one of the key insights of Markowitz's portfolio theory, which is like the foundation of investment these days, is that you know risk doesn't attach to individual assets, it attaches to portfolios. And so you want to look at the portfolio view and not the individual asset. Well, the exact same thing attached is, is true here. So we really want the tool to let us look not just at an individual activity, but at the whole portfolio. Like, what are we all getting up to? Uh, what's the impact of that collective activity? Okay, so that's the first challenge, is looking at individual level instead of at the collective level. Whereas we know that a lot of environmental harm emerges at the collective level, so we need something that lets us, lets investors look in real time, I think, at the, the collective level and figure out how they're going to fit their investment in with that. Um, I'm going to come back in a little bit and talk more about why that's important, what the solutions are, and that kind of thing. The second gap that I think is there with this uh, you know, taxonomy, and you know, a second reason why we could invest according to this taxonomy and still have catastrophic environmental effects, is that the taxonomy can, of course, only take into account harmful effects that we already know about and are aware of. But we're talking about introducing lots of new technologies, and those technologies are going to have, they're going to be at scale, they're going to be, you know, potentially very large scale, widespread, that's going to have all sorts of impacts that we can't possibly foresee now. So that's a, that's a second reason why it would be possible to invest according to that taxonomy, but still have catastrophic impacts. And just to motivate that thought, consider the example of plastics. So back in the day, we were all super excited. Well, I was, was a little bit too little to be excited, but we collectively were all super excited um, about the introduction of plastics because it meant 
that we wouldn't be cutting down all those trees to produce paper bags the way we had been. Now we could have plastic bags. And we wouldn't be cutting down all those trees to produce wooden toys and wooden chairs and wooden tables because now we could have plastic chairs and plastic toys and plastic tables, which were much better for the environment. You know, that was a, a real optimism about the environmental benefit of plastics at that earlier time. We didn't realize what an impact they would have negative environmental impact until much later when we saw the kind of collective level of, you know, the collective level. So are we going to get away with not having that be true now as we do these enormous uh, changes? Of course not. We are going to have lots of big impacts that we aren't, you know, can't possibly hope to anticipate right now. So that's the second problem. And I'll come back and talk about what I imagine one solution might be to this. A third challenge is that a lot of environmental harm is very locally specific. It's locally distributed. And so the knowledge about that environmental harm is very socially distributed. It's not gathered up in one place. And moreover, environmental harm tends to disproportionately affect people who are already disadvantaged in various ways. So that's the phenomenon of environmental justice, uh, the topic of environmental injustice, um, which really notices that, okay, it tends to be that people who have fewer resources are less able to protect themselves against environmental harms. They don't have the money to buy this, that, and the other to protect themselves from environmental harms or to access environmental goods. So the very fact that people are, who are experiencing a lot of environmental harms are already often very socially disadvantaged means that as a function of that, their voices are often much less influential in the decision-making, they're less easily heard, their insights and knowledge is therefore not part of the conversation. And so the people who are making a lot of the decisions, you know, A, they're disempowered by this, and B, the people who are making the decisions don't benefit from that local environmental knowledge because there's no kind of mechanism for it to be moving into the decision-making. So that's another reason why this kind of broad brushstroke taxonomy, this kind of using very big categories, um, might not capture a huge amount of that local environmental harm. Okay, so I'm going to turn now to solutions that I think we can work with as ways of mitigating these three challenges and bridging these three gaps. So the first challenge that I raised was about this individual versus collective level evaluation of greenness. The ideal thing would be, well, I'm hypothesizing, I don't know for sure, I'm hypothesizing that an ideal thing would be for us to have some mechanism that's added into the taxonomy or added on top of it. Maybe it's a non-credit rating thing. I don't know. We need the banker. We need Sean to help us with this. That lets us look at the collective level impacts of our activities as they're happening so that then investors can choose what to invest in, not just by looking at one asset, but by seeing the wider pattern and what's needed, you know, Basically, something that tells you we need a little bit more of this right now and a little bit less of that right now um, so that they can look at the collective picture. And when we're thinking about needing a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that and how we decide what those things are, it's really important to think not just about um, let's not have too many solar farms all at once. Uh, it's important to think about the ways in which different technologies that we're using 
have, may have similar impacts on key resources. Solar and wind and biofuels all exert land use pressures. Now, this is really important to understand and take in the, the significance of that, right? Because um, when you're thinking about biodiversity and protecting biodiversity, the big driver of biodiversity loss has not so far been climate change. That'll change, right, if we don't do something. But we've had catastrophic drops in biodiversity as a result of habitat destruction and habitat fragmentation with stuff like the agricultural industry driving a lot of that. So um, a recent UN report shows that, he, you know, kind of a primary industry driver of climate change has been agriculture. And that's because so much land gets cleared in order to produce food. So we're talking about clearing huge amounts of land now to produce solar power and wind and biofuels. When I spoke with a Princeton economist about this, he was really interesting, but he was like, oh yeah, I'm really into a diversified portfolio approach like you. Uh, look, I think we should have a sixth of the world's, he showed me a pie chart, a sixth of the world's sur land surface should be devoted to uh, wind farms, a sixth of the world's land surface should be devoted to solar, blah, blah, blah. But when you're thinking about a sixth of the world's land going to these technologies, that's an enormous impact on um, biodiversity and on habitat. And that's on top of all the agricultural demands, right? So we have to be looking at the collective level, at the impacts of these diverse technologies on land pressure on water pressure you know what what pollutants are they sending into the ecosystems um, and that's challenging but we've got to do it so that's that's um a big challenge and i think hopefully with sean we'll talk about this so my solution for number one was we need some real-time technology that lets investors see what where's the bulk of investment happening right now and to choose to invest somewhere else right to sort of even out effects the solution for the second one is related to that so um the fact that we can't predict what some of these impacts are going to be a great way to mitigate against these unforeseen you know foreseeable unforeseens to quote a favorite president um is to diversify wildly so often people think diversifying means put your, res your resources into like three baskets instead of one, um, but that's mistaken. So when you look at Ms. Markovitz, again, the kind of portfolio theory, what it teaches us is that if you, your, your risk, the risk bit of the equation is modeled by one over N, where N is the number of investments, like the number of assets you're investing in. If you've just invested in one, then your risk is one, and that's not good because it means there's a complete correlation between your one asset and like your, your risk. That's where you don't want to be. One over two isn't great. Either one over three isn't great. One over a thousand is a lot safer. You know, so distributing the risk as widely as possible, trying to invest in as many different kinds of things uh, I'm hypothesizing is a way to mitigate against some of those risks. And finally, the third gap that I identified was the gap around the kind of environmental justice gap, the fact that a lot of these, the knowledge of these harms is often very socially distributed and distributed especially amongst people who have less social influence and less power. And the solution there is, you know, we have to become more porous and more, and to really be working hard to 
shift the power structures around banking. And at the conference, I said, is anybody talking about decolonizing banking? Everybody kind of giggled. But it's a really interesting question, looking at the history of banking and colonialism. and how We don't need to get into all of that now. I think the key thing to say here is that actually, this is a moment where huge amounts of shift are happening on this very topic. Uh, so since Colston's statue came down, I've had so many different companies and industries and um, governmental organizations contacting me asking, how can we do this better? The fact that Sean invited me is a reflection of that as well. People want to be opening up and shifting power. So, you know, human beings are incredibly creative and we will figure that out. Okay, so what I've done in this talk is I've motivated us and inspired us hopefully to feel like the seemingly impossible can become possible and now is a moment for us to grow big enough to sit in our chairs. I've identified and explained one of the key tools that's available now, the EU taxonomy. Um, I've said what it does well, which is to help us look at trade-offs, environmental trade-offs, and give us a shared language and some common standards. And I've identified three gaps um, and explained some ways to deal with those. So the gaps were not looking at individual investments, but looking at the collective in level, as well as the individual, I guess, um, that we need to be diversifying wildly in order to deal with the fact that we'll have impacts we, we're not anticipating. Um, and the sort of the need for social transformation that brings a much wider range of voices in to influence the decisions about where this money is going and addressing the problems, therefore, that are only visible really at the local level. Before we launch into a discussion of some of the issues raised by Jana's talk, here's a response from Sean Edwards, Chairman of the International Trade and Forfeiting Association. Well, thank you, Julian, and thank you, Jana. We, we as bankers have a number of problems. So, I mean, let's be clear that there's a, there's a bit of a battle going on here between the profit ethic and the good citizen ethic, I, I think, in banks. And it's clear when you look at a lot of what is going on in banking in relation to green finance, there's a huge mixture of, of carrot and stick here. Now, I think there is hopefully more carrot or there will become more carrot as we go on. People will want to do this. I think um, we, did, we did giggle when Jana suggested that we should be decolonized because I think we are actually quite a, already a, a decolonized um, bunch of people. And certainly within ITFA, we have a lot of new entrants to the market, younger people who actually um, have grown up in, you know, in a world that you know, it's really quite different, which has threats that are quite different to the ones that I grew up with. I grew up um, during the Cold War. Um, the threat there was nuclear annihilation. Now, fortunately, we seem to have um, pushed that problem back, maybe not permanently, but at least for a while. And, we, and we're faced with a much more, much bigger problem that's the concern of, of all of us. Now, what can banks do about this? It is a lot of this is about the money that we can put into uh, into changing human activity. You'll all have seen a lot of the announcements coming out of COP26 this week. The one that came out that, I think, today or or yesterday was the Glasgow um, Alliance for for Net Banking Zero. So this is that my own bank um, is a member of this. This is banks pledging by 2050 to reduce the harmful activities that they finance indirectly influencing all this 
this harmful activity. Now, there are a couple of problems here, and I think Joanne has um, talked about them. The first one is, yes, we have a taxonomy, but in fact, the real problem is that we have lots of taxonomies and we have lots of standards. And we have private standards, we have national standards, we have international standards. Uh, and it's sometimes very hard to know um, as a banker which standard we should be going for. So really part of my purpose of actually uh, inviting Joanna was to say, you know, really, look, you've got these standards. I, Joanna, don't know all of them, but here's the path to enlightenment. This is how you can grow into those big Buddhist chairs that Joanna described. Because what will happen naturally, I think, over time is that these a lot of these standards will get whittled away, whittled down, or there will be, I think this is maybe more germane, there will be a greater convergence of the standards. So if I just take the taxonomy, now that we're post-Brexit, we are, uh, of course, are no longer subject to the EU taxonomy. We're coming up with a UK taxonomy. That is still draft. We hope very much that it will be um, consistent with the EU taxonomy and indeed other taxonomies. But we also have other standards that we can uh, adhere to or be inspired by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example. And what is the optimal system really, or what is the optimal taxonomy or standard? There are also hedge funds, by the way, uh, who are very important in investing in this area, who are coming up with their own standards. They clearly, and, and very importantly, and this will be my next point, ways of measuring how that standard is evaluated. So we need to think as bankers, uh, we have a lot of material that's available to us, a lot of standards, that we can uh, adhere to, but we in a way have too many. And I think we need to have a little bit of clear thinking about what it is we should be both adhering to, maybe if that's a private standard, or what it is we should be trying to influence. Because as I say, inevitably at the end, we will have some sort of imposed taxonomy, but we're at the point now at this stage where actually uh, we can influence what goes into those taxonomies. So that's the first thing. What is the actual what are the actual criteria, the black and white criteria, if you like? The second problem uh, is the one of measurement. And that's, in a way, a much bigger problem because, uh, you know, Joanna's mentioned greenwashing. The fact is it's, it's almost impossible not to greenwash sometimes because the ways by which you measure um, the output of any given standard, uh, a taxonomy or a private standard, vary so much. So if I take one example, deforestation, obviously, it's a big problem. Joanna talked about this and stopping deforestation and uh, reforesting um, are very important because forests act as carbon sinks. Now, one of the problems is if you think about the countries that do have big forests, and Russia is one example, is that in fact, forests in Russia apparently have expanded. They've got bigger. Uh, and that's partly because there's been some reclaiming of what was formerly uh, arable land um, and also because apparently trees are apparently marching north there's more carbon dioxide they absorb this stuff and they grow and so they and when they grow of course they seed and uh, and send out saplings and so the forests have grown by apparently by around 25 percent now that's great on the one hand the problem then is what you do with that uh, firstly so that's an offset into the other harmful activities that are potentially going on um, in Russia through maybe inefficient industrial processes. And in the long term, and Joanna touched on this as well, you've got to think about issues like permanence. So 
if in fact you have managed to expand your forest, how permanent is that? The issue of permanency and the issue, the issue of additionality, as it's called, where you invest in reforestation. These things are you know, very flexible. They're very susceptible to being twisted by, uh, by, by vested interests. So and these are two of the things, for example, that have been discussed this week. There's no settled standard on that. So we've got that issue of the measurements of these outputs. Um, uh, th- there's no single standard for measuring carbon emissions. And sometimes the, the problem also is that you have double or triple counting sometimes where, you know, uh, if oil is extracted, it's burnt, it's used, it can be counted three times, for example. There, there are efforts to, to try and standardise the accounting standards, but we're really at an infancy there. And I think it's important, therefore, when we start to think about the standards or the tools that we want to use and bring in to actually measure the outputs, to actually measure the criteria, that actually we are driven and we're motivated by very clear ideas. And you know, this is really one of the reasons why I wanted Joanna to, uh, to to speak to us. It made us think at what is a very foundational time for banking. Banks will, in some form or another, have to invest in green finance. There are compulsory disclosure requirements for banks, and there will be over time also for listed companies. For example, there are already some disclosure requirements in the UK. But eventually, you know, that will roll out and get a lot bigger. But banks already uh, and other financial services providers already under an obligation, insurers, big insurers, for example, very important part of the financial scene, they're already under an obligation to disclose what they're doing with finance. So this measurement point becomes very important because greenwashing really is an issue. When we push out products at my bank, that's almost the first thing that we think about. What are the criteria, first of all? What are the standards and the processes and the tools at which we're going to measure that? And how is that going to be disclosed to the public, to our investors, to our shareholders and to our regulators? So all of this is really, as I said, at a foundational stage. It's in its infancy. The good thing is there is a lot going on. And I think um, we were talking about this earlier on, that there is no real single magic bullet to ending climate change. If you look at, and some people have criticised this as being too patchwork, but if you look at the at the announcements coming out, or the pronouncements coming out of COP26, you'll see stuff on ending um, the use of coal. That's something that has to be phased in over time because it's actually would cause significant harm to uh, many native populations if you were to suddenly stop coal mining or coal usage without there being a, uh, a viable alternative in place or a viable industry to employ those people. Then we come to, you know, what is the output of all of this? That's where we have to bring in, uh, we are still bringing in processes, the tools, the techniques. That's really why I wanted a philosopher as opposed to a banker to really tell us what was the right way to think. I think this is a, it's about thinking. It's about um, doing the right thing. It's about, um, to use the, the phrase in the, uh, in the EU taxonomy, doing no significant harm when we look at the green activities that we are doing and that we're actually truthful about what these mean. And some of that is personal willingness to be truthful and not to skip corners. But another one on a much bigger, and I go to the point that Joanna made about us doing this collectively, the important thing is that we actually are helped by our regulators, by our governments to actually come up with 
those those standards. And when those standards, having gone through proper uh, thought process, um, are imposed on us, we can be we can be confident that they work. Thanks so much, Sean, for that. Before we actually get into any any details, I want to kind of step back a bit. This, this series is called Expanding Horizons, and it's put for the Royal Institute of Philosophy. And of course, one of the things about expanding traditional horizons of philosophy is that as soon as you do anything a little bit uh, different, the first question more conservative minds would ask, what well, is that philosophy? You know, what's what's philosophy about that? And I was struck that you began your talk with this sort of motivational sort of bit. You are motivating us. Now, I mean, most philosophy talks um, actually start with the complete opposite. Their, their main role is to demotivate you and to lower your expectations. So we're told that this is a work in progress. We're not going to address this. I'm only going to focus on this and et cetera, et cetera. Um, why as a philosopher do you start that with the motivational thing? Or were you actually like forgetting you're a philosopher a bit and just thinking, I'm going to do some public speaking and motivation is the name of the game these days. <laughs> yeah, I guess in philosophy, there's often a sense that um, you shouldn't be doing these kind of rhetorical moves that, you know, engage the passions and so on. But there are great advantages of that, of course, of the discipline of um, philosophy. As we often practice it, we're being very careful about rhetorical moves. We're being much more uh, circumspect. But you know, this is this is too important for us not to engage our motivations. One of the things that is attractive to me about some of the Buddhist philosophy and uh, maybe in Indian philosophy in general is the sense that philosophy is not an abstract, separate, purely conceptual activity, that the practice of philosophy should lead to enlightenment in that case, right? And so that, that the practice of philosophy should be expansive. These kind of metaphysical understandings can lead to different states of being. That's just so much more interesting to me uh, as a practice of philosophy. And the issues are big. We can't just sit around and pretend, oh, well, we, we see this from a purely detached perspective it's just way too important that we do get motivated, that we do tackle the issues. And I guess one thing I'd say also about, um, maybe related to this, about my approach to doing philosophical work, I often get very frightened when philosophers take an interest in practical ethics because we often have terrible judgment. And the reason that we have terrible judgment is that we're coming at stuff without the practical hands-on side of things. I think you could hear from Sean speaking there's great judgment there because he's thinking about the issues in practice in a day-to-day -day way, and that refines your judgment. Philosophers often come to these topics, pursue a line of thought that's abstract and that just takes them off on some irrelevant tangent um, and often, you know, disconnected. So in the work that I've done on contested heritage, um, that's been very, very closely engaged with the contours of debates on the ground, the, I'm, it's, it's, I'm involved in act, activity and the kind of civic stage that then I'm thinking about and reflecting about philosophically as I'm doing it, and then I write something up afterwards. Um, and I think that that methodology means that that philosophical work is then really nicely anchored to the debates on the ground and, and stays, um, I hope, more closely connected to it. And I guess I'm interested in whether something, you know, maybe I can develop some similar skills and uh, content maybe in this in this area where, where I haven't yet had that kind of practical connection. But, um, yeah. 
And can I can yeah, I give I mean, a, a vote of thanks here and, and, and support to you know to philosophers at this point in this area because we, we're already at a foundational point uh, in green finance and in the way we act as as green banks and there is just so much to think about now I, I wouldn't have asked Joanna to talk about um, you know buying equities I, I'm sure there's a an ethical or a philosophical angle to that but that's already been well thought through I think this is an we, we are. This is a really epochal moment, and I, and I think it's therefore really important to have people like Joanna and like yourself, Julian, really getting involved in this because bankers are motivated by profit, yes, but increasingly we're also motivated by doing the right thing. We don't always know what that is. I mean, thanks for that. I mean, going back to the, the key sort of bulk of your, your talk uh, after the motivational um, preamble, again, now I'm, I'm thinking... Your philosophy is sometimes done under the surface. Um, people may remember Honora O'Neill's Reef Lectures, BBC Reef Lectures on Trust, which I thought were remarkable pieces of public philosophy, partly because a lot of the time if you were listening to it, you weren't obviously listening to a philosopher in a sense. And I think in a lot of what you were saying, um, you know, I don't think you know, we weren't hearing philosophers being cited or referenced. You mentioned Markovich, but not a philosopher, I don't think, of theory of uh, portfolios and in investment. How was philosophy we whirring away under the surface of that talk? Because it just may not be obvious that there was it was a philosophical talk at all. Starting with the uh, you know Manjushri's magical magnificent chairs, I do feel that this is a philosophical mode of inquiry, mode of exploration that is orienting yourself towards a certain way of perceiving reality, and then letting action follow from that. To me, this is philosophical. So I'm not persuaded by some of the criteria of what counts as philosophy as having to be purely conceptual analysis and certain modes of premise-premise-conclusion argumentation, uh, much as I love those modes of philosophical inquiry. But then on the the section, um, as we got into the foundations of the EU taxonomy, there, I suppose, you know, you're looking at how individual behavior relates to collective behavior and a lot of the stuff around kind of, um, I guess, a lot of work on philosophy of risk is connected to the kinds of things that I was talking about. Epistemic questions about how you act in contexts where you are ignorant. So when I was uh, doing my PhD, actually I was working on questions of consequentialism and ignorance. So I thought if you're, if you think the consequences of your ma actions matter a lot and you believe yourself to be ignorant about a lot of the consequences, where does that leave you ethically? Um, and one of the things that I ended up arguing in Clues for Consequentialists was that actually, although we're often ignorant about individual actions and the, the consequences of individual actions, we have less ignorance in some cases about the, it, the consequences of overall patterns of action. And so I argued that that gives consequentialists at least a clue uh, some of the time. Interestingly, in this context, I'm suggesting that we may struggle with some of the kind of the collective side of things. So maybe this pushes against my, my arguments and clues for consequentialists. I don't know, I'll need to think about that. A lot of people are, particularly people who are skeptical about claims of green business and so forth, um, very much do sort of focus on the ways in which businesses have behaved badly and how you sort of can't trust them and so forth. 
But also, of course, corporate entities do change over time. So boards, a, a company which has been exemplary could become less so. And similarly, a company which has behaved badly can improve. And but with these environmental issues, I think there's often a sense that it's it's not just about consequences. It is about something else, right? So, for example, a lot of people object to offsetting. And they use this analogy that it's like, you know, a medieval indulgence that, you know, um, it's like saying, oh, well, you know, I've committed adultery, but I can pay that sin off. And offsetting is like that. Whereas uh, the important difference to me there seems to be that the point about adultery in, a, in, the, in that original sort of Catholic context was it was a sin in itself. It wasn't that it had bad consequences. It was a sinful action. Nothing you can do could wipe it out. If, if in environmental terms where, you know, what makes things wrong or right is their effects, their consequences, full stop. I mean, is this one area then where the, the, the right moral approach is entirely about consequences and the other... You know, moral philosophy talks about duties, it talks about virtue, character, and so forth. But do you think that whatever philosophers may think about this, when we're trying to address the environment, we should all we all have to become consequentialists, really. Anything else perhaps is an indulgence in this situation. That's such an interesting question. So I really like that that question has revealed to me that I was operating with pretty consequentialist assumptions as I was thinking about this, but I wouldn't want to prescribe that. So I think it's very respectable for people to want to invest in a company that's showing virtue in a deeper sense where you might want your money to go towards a company that has been really good about kind of consistently expressing its respect for every human being and for all living things, maybe, in a way that's very thoroughgoing because that's what you want to be part of. And that you don't want to participate in, you know, some companies that's just doing this to make a profit when, in fact, you know, like when the winds change, they're going to shift. You want to have your own action expressing respect for all and that that's got to be kind of a more holistic, you know, view that needs to be part of the company. I, I respect and like that. So, no, I wouldn't say that I don't think we should uh, say only consequentialists get to do environmental stuff. I'm not attracted to that view. And I like that this question has made me realize the consequentialist um, assumptions behind how I've been talking about it. Um, I've got a question here from John Kaleka called Kaleja, which again goes back to these issues of historical justice. But this is a very focused one. If the polluter should pay, should the developed countries pay for their past? Is it fair to apply fines um, <laughs> retrospectively? And again, I mean, th 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 this is this is a fair point. Because if we're talking about, I mean, the, the framework here isn't actually, I don't think, related to systems of, of, of fines or, or taxes or, or so forth. But to, yeah, to what extent would, would any fair system of green taxation have to penalise people for what they have done? And from, I suppose, from a legal point of view, that has interesting questions about um, retrospective law, I guess. Um, any thoughts on that, Joanna? Well, I suppose um, this does take us into territories of collective responsibility and historic injustice that are quite different from what we're kind of starting out with, but clearly, clearly related. I have a reasonably strong pragmatist streak, I suppose, which makes me 
again, brings us back to my focus on the kind of the future-oriented stuff, I suppose, in this area and more. Yeah. The issues are, it's so important for us to tackle the future-oriented stuff that I'm less concerned about historical responsibility than I am in other contexts. There are different ways of approaching the who pays for stuff question. You can say the polluter should pay, you should say the beneficiary should pay, and you can say that whoever is able to pay should pay. I suppose the attraction of some of the green finance stuff is that instead of it asking who should pay this punitive amount, it's holding out a carrot a bit more. I think the issues are so big that we need to take a pragmatic approach. I, I would yeah. totally endorse that. I think that's absolutely the right approach. I think the last one is the polluter that can pay um, because maybe he's enriched himself through pollution. It's time to sort of atone, if I can use that slightly uh, slightly emotive word, but he, he can do it. And I think this is what the global framework that we're increasingly working towards will allow it to do. And, and in a sense, if that right is wronged and it's for the benefit of everybody, including those in this question of developing countries, does it matter? One thing I find so interesting in, in Jana's response was that, uh, you know, again, people may think that, you know, philosophy is trying to find the most general kind of rules and everything. And the fact that it's quite context dependent, the one, you know, there isn't a general answer to the question, how important is historical injustice for today? It depends on how that plays out today. And I guess, I'm guessing perhaps that with other issues around slavery, for example, the connection between the historical injustice and what's happening now is strong and, and can make an important practical difference whether you address the past, whereas maybe with the climate that's less, less so. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point about how context-specific things are. So in my work on contested heritage, I'm thinking quite a lot about transitional justice, the idea that um, societies, as they're transitioning from, you know, stages and times when there have been mass human rights abuses, that there are responsibilities that attend with that, the responsibilities of justice, of accountability, of repair, of non-continuation of harms. And I suppose in this case, to put it in that framework, I think there is a an urgency to address the non-continuation of harms first. And as the priority and that some of the questions around accountability and repair and those kinds of things are, yeah, they need to come later. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>